0: In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I'm going to share with you some of the comments that I've received with regard to my last broadcast, as well as my last column in the Washington Times. Comments that, well, quite frankly, aren't that complimentary. Comments such as, you're a flake, you're deplorable, you're a science denier, you're a joke. How do you respond to these reactions? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome to today's rebellion. On today's show, I'm going to respond to the question that I often get, and that is, how do you deal with the criticism? How do you deal with the person that calls you names? You must get a lot of it, Piper. You are out there in the public. You are saying things that are controversial. You're saying things that the left doesn't like. Why do you do it? And how do you respond? I'm going to give you a couple examples of criticisms that I have received just over the course of the last uh, 24, 48 hours with regard to my commentary on this show as well as from my newspaper column in the Washington Times. I'm actually going to read a couple of these criticisms that I've received. I'm going to let you digest them, and then I'm going to give you some examples on how to respond. And I'm going to once again answer the question, why do I continue to do this? Why do I continue to enter into the public square, into the marketplace of ideas via podcasts, via radio, and in writing, and in my daily communication with my family and friends? Why do I do it, and how do you respond to the person who gets angry, and calls you names, because yes, it does happen, and it's happened in spades over the last few hours for me. Now, I laugh, because this kind of gives me an adrenaline rush. If anything, I need to learn to pare it back a bit, and make sure that I try to respond in a godly fashion, rather than in a tit-for-tat. Before I share with you, however, a couple of the criticisms I've received over the last handful of hours... And yes, I'm going to read them to you verbatim. I think you might find them interesting. But before I do that, remember that you can subscribe to The Rebellion by going to patreon.com backslash Dr. Everett Piper. That's patreon.com backslash D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R. Let's take an early break, acknowledge our corporate sponsors. And when I get back, I'm going to share with you two or three of the criticisms that people have actually took the time to write to me and send to me. They've looked up my email and they've sent it to me. Uh, They're entertaining. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I will be right back in a couple minutes. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. Uh, How much time do I have? Let's see. I'm going to start with the longer of the responses that I've received, where the guy actually took the time... To research my my personal email and send this to me directly. Now it's not that difficult to send me stuff on the Rebellion website because there's a contact information there, but that doesn't go to me directly. That goes to a, that goes to a uh, I don't know what you call it. It goes to a different site, and then that site sends me comments. But this person bypassed that somehow and actually found my email. Now before I read his criticism his comments to me i need to set the context a bit of a repeat here and if you listen to yesterday's show don't panic i'm not going to belabor this but i want to make sure that those who didn't listen to yesterday's yesterday's show excuse me understand the context of what i'm talking about otherwise this all could be just uh, stuff that's mumbled in a vacuum So, I want to go to the article that I wrote. I said that Justice Anthony Kennedy, back in 1992, released a Kraken upon all of culture. He opened up Pandora's box for much that ails us today with this comment in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992. Here's his quote At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, you know that I went on to criticize that, and I said this is not a positive statement, it's a negative statement, because it basically codified into law the right to define yourself in a manner that is totally subjective, that reality doesn't matter, the facts don't matter, your feelings do. That's what Justice Anthony Kennedy actually proclaimed in this Supreme Court ruling. And this has led to much that ails us today. This has led to the LGBTQ subjective confusion that if you think you are something different than what science, biology, physiology, genetics actually says you are, then you can define your concept of existence, of meaning. You can decide who you are in a manner that's totally inconsistent with the facts that you see before your very eyes. If you're a male, you can decide and define yourself as female. I mean, this is running rampant over us right now in our culture. And if I would have warned of this back in 1992, you would have said I was nuts. If I would have warned about it just five years ago, six years ago, which I did, you would have said, this guy's a little bit over the top. Oh, that'll never happen. But here we are. We're living in a time where subjectivity reigns, where it doesn't matter what you believe as long as it works for you. But there's a problem here because when you can subjectively define yourself, you can likewise subjectively define others. If you can dumb yourself down to nothing but your emotions, your libido, um, your imagination, your feelings, then you can do the same to other human beings. Because if you're less than fully human, if you're less than an objective reality, then you can also look at other people around you and define them as less than. Now, that's the language that critical race theory is using right now. That's the language of Hannah Nicole Jones of the 1619 Project, It's the language of Nick Cannon, who actually said that in an interview, that white people are less than. It's the language of much that's going on in culture right now with the pro-life, pro-choice debate. Because Nancy Pelosi won't even answer the question as to whether or not a viable baby in the womb is a human being. She won't answer the question. She just says, well, I've had five kids, and I think that makes me an expert on this matter. No, it doesn't. Answer the question. Is a viable baby in the womb that can feel pain, that has a beating heartbeat, that can move its thumbs, its fingers, its toes, that can actually turn and kick? Is that a human being or isn't it? And like I said, Pelosi refuses to even answer the question. She resorts to feelings, the feelings that she has from actually having children herself. She doesn't acknowledge the facts, biological, physiological facts that we can actually refer to. She claims to be pro-science, but she ignores the science. Anyway, I digress. Here's the point. Here's the point of all that I'm saying right now. I believe that Justice Kennedy's comments back in 1992 have set the context for that. He's not, he's not alone responsible for this, but because he's a Supreme Court justice and because he actually codified it into law in a majority ruling in the Supreme Court of the United States of America, this is a very important comment. So, as you know, in response to that, I wrote this article. I wrote this article, which basically makes the points I've been making right now, and I ask questions like this in the article. Are we morally culpable? Do we choose our own actions? Do our appetites and defi- desires excuse me, define us? Can we and should we rise above our instincts and our inclinations? Can we decide to behave differently? Are we defined by the color of our skin or the content of our character? Is there such a thing as an objective male... And female, and then I go on and I say this, if we can't get the answers to these questions right, then all else will be wrong in the wake that follows. In other words, all of those are rhetorical questions that try to make the point that we are human beings and we don't have the right to change that. That's a reality. And I make the argument in the article that we are human beings defined by God. We are the imago Dei. We are the image, imago, day of God. Day, God, imago, image. We are the image of God. And that makes us different than everything else that we're looking at around us. It makes us different than your dog or your cows or your horse. Uh, that is a critical distinction because... If you are different, then you should be treated differently in law, in society, and other people have a moral responsibility to honor that difference. But if you are no different than the rest of what you see around you, if you're no, no different than the dog or the horse, then they can treat you like a dog or a horse if they disagree with you. You get my point? That was the point of the article. Well. Let's get back to the criticism, so I have time to read one or two of them to you, and then tell you briefly why I do this and how to respond. And maybe if you're choosing to do the same thing, how you should do it and how you should respond, or at least I can give you an example and I can encourage you and I can embolden you. Um, Context here: I often get asked the question, "Why do you bother? Don't you get sick of getting beat up? And you're not going to win these people over anyway?" So, Piper, why do you do this? Well. As I've said before, I do it because I may win one or two of these people over, but I admit, I fully admit that you've got a lot of people out there. They're angry, they're reading this stuff or they're listening to this show, and they're just they're just going to pop off. They're not going to be rational. But there's another reason to do this other than to win the argument with them. The other reason to do it is there are hundreds or perhaps even thousands of people out there watching. And they need to be encouraged. And it's the same with you. There are more people watching you than you realize. And when you have courage, when you have clarity, when you have boldness, when you step into the storm rather than running away from the storm, and when you do it well, by God's grace, you are going to accomplish something several times over what you realize you're accomplishing because you're encouraging a lot of other people who just need to see that the fight is worth it. So that's one of the reasons I do it, people. Back to this criticism from Mr. Sheely. Ian Sheely, he wrote this to me yesterday. Dearest Dr. Piper, and I'm going to read it verbatim here. The sickly sweet taste of self-righteousness. The buttery flakiness of impending doom. The velvety heat of big tent preaching. Is it lunchtime? Over the course of your column, you've asked, do we still believe in science? While simultaneously imploring a return to 5,000-year-old values. Asking, do you believe in genetics? While discounting what was likely responsible for us sharing huge swaths of DNA with everything from pigs to squids. And you've asked these things rhetorically, suggesting to the audience that you are a stalwart defender or perhaps a crusader of these realms. The irony of someone bemoaning the loss of an ultimate first truth and then suggesting a return to the good old-fashioned science and logic while proselytizing is almost too rich to enjoy in one sitting. I'm going to need a glass of beef milk. I know, I know, religious affiliation is dropping in the United States, the gays have rights, and there's a Democrat in the office. Times are tough, and it looks like the Christian ethno-state may have to wait another election cycle. Hang in there, bucko. In the meantime, have a snack. Ian. P.S. The slithered snake sin allegory at the end was great. (laughs) Okay, That's the comment from one of my critics. I'm going to read another one to you here, and uh, then I'll give you an example on perhaps how to respond. This one is from Aaron Miller. He sent me this too. Now, it amazes me that people actually take the time to sit down and find an author of a column in a newspaper and send them these types of comments. Now, when you all do it positively, I appreciate the time that you take to do so, and I try to respond to a lot of them. But really, taking the time to look up an author and send them these diatribes, uh, that always causes me to scratch my head a bit. All right, Uh, let's read this criticism from Aaron Miller. The only intellectual pornography and pedagogical poison is your article in the Washington Times where you try to use your god, lowercase g by the way, to state objective truth. Context for that. In my article, I actually refer to intellectual pornography and pedagogical poison. I use that phrase to describe the subjectivity that's running rampant in our culture right now. I actually refer to Augustine, who said it's the fantastica fornicatio, the prostitution of the mind, of the intellect. I refer to M. Scott Peck, who calls it the diabolical human mind, and Graham Walker, who calls it the pathology of the intellect. It's this ability, the human ability, to lie to ourselves so consistently that we start actually believing our own lies. So he's using my language there. Back to his comment. The only intellectual pornography and pedagogical poison is your article in The Washington Times where you try to use your God to state objective truth and you dare to promote science in the same sentence. You're either an irrational human looking to a fairy tale father for guidance, or you're a rational being who actually uses science, which actually proved your entire argument is completely false and objectively wrong. You can't have it both ways. Hashtag deplorable. Okay, so those are two of the comments that I received this week. Two very critical comments where people have called me deplorable. They've accused me of being irrational. They are angry. They are condescending. And they are intentionally being rude. Now, how do we respond to this? Again, some of you that are listening right now may be saying, well, I don't want to get into that. I don't want to have to suffer these fools. I don't want to have to... uh, Respond to people calling me names on a daily basis. It's not my spiritual gift. And, you know, I think the first response I have, or the first point of instruction I would have for you, is recognize how God has made you. I mean, some people actually enjoy the good fight. They get an adrenaline rush out of engaging in the argument. I obviously am one of those. This does not bother me. I don't lose sleep over it. But other people aren't made that way. In fact, just this past week, I was giving some counsel to some family members because there's a question in play right now as to whether or not to challenge, to issue a legal challenge to some of the COVID vaccine requirements that are being imposed by colleges and universities. And one of the first things I said is, I need to pare back my advice to you because I like this fight. I would say, bring it on. I want to sue the university for trying to force me to do this. But I recognize that that is not the way God has made everyone. Some people just don't enjoy that. Some people are going to get very anxious over it. They're going to lose sleep over it, and they're going to regret the fact that they chose to engage in such a forthright and aggressive way. So, number one, recognize who you are. And if you're like me, you can't push other people to fight your fights for you. You can't live your life vicariously through others. They may not feel the same way about the battle as you do. So that's point number one. Be careful. Recognize your gifting. Don't push others into the battle in the same manner that you choose to engage. I don't think that's right. Uh, I think that can be unhealthy. But if you're not as aggressive, if you're not as interested in doing what I'm doing on this radio show, on this podcast right now, I still think you're obligated to speak the truth and to speak it with clarity and boldly. I think that is your obligation. You can't just step away from these things and shrug your shoulders and say, live and let live. It's It's not my worry. It's not my fight. No, I do think you're responsible for engaging. And one of the ways I would respond to these two critics, and I realize I have limited time on this show, is to go back and pick apart a couple of their comments and just ask them questions. Again, what did Jesus do? He was confronted like this all the time. Remember this. I've talked about this before on this show Jesus was confronted all the time. He was insulted all the time. They called him the spawn of Satan, my land. You realize that, don't you? I mean, you can't get much more insulting than that. They said he was the son of Beelzebub. That is akin to saying he's the spawn of Satan. And how did Jesus respond? He didn't back down, he didn't run away and hide. He didn't say, oh, I I just don't want to get involved in these arguments. But he also didn't turn around and return insult for insult. Almost always, Jesus looked at the people who called him names, who mocked him, who said in today's vernacular, you're deplorable, you're a rube, you live in the flyover states of that area down by Galilee, you're not really from Jerusalem. You don't have the intellectual capacity to engage theologically and logically and legally and ontologically on these levels. Who the heck do you think you are? Sound familiar? Does it sound like the same tone, the same type of criticism that I'm getting in these emails? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not equating myself with Jesus. Jesus. But what I am saying is as a follower of Jesus, it might be wise for me to watch and to listen as to how he responded to very similar angry diatribes. And remember what I've said. He almost never chose to engage in a lengthy debate or argument with these people. He almost always used the rhetorical question. Whose face is on the coin? Why do you call me Lord? And do you want to pick up the first stone and throw it? That's the way Jesus responded to these insults. And there's stuff in these two comments that you could do the same. For example, they're saying that I am trying to promote objective truth. Let's read the last or the second to last sentence from this guy named Aaron you're either an irrational human looking to a fairy tale father so he's just elevated rationality reason okay we can use that in our response you are either an irrational human looking for a fairy tale father for guidance, or you are a rational being who actually uses science, which actually proved your entire argument is completely false. And objectively, he capitalizes that wrong. So he just elevated rationality, science, and objectivity as the context for his disagreement with me. How should I respond to him? I'm just curious. If you believe in rationality, and reason, if you believe that fairy tales are inferior to reality, and if you're elevating objectivity as a cornerstone to your world view, where does all that come from? Is rationality and objectivity nothing but a social construct? Or is it something bigger and better than that. And if it is bigger and better, where does it come from? Does it come from your mind, your opinions, your feelings, the way you choose to define the mystery of the universe? Or is there an objective, you said it, an objective reality out there that's bigger than your feelings? Ask that question, and then just be quiet just be quiet. Force them to answer. And as you can see, they have just fallen in to their own trap because they have to answer that there is some measuring rod outside of those things being measured, or you can do no measuring. He's measuring me as being wrong. He's using rationality and objectivity to measure me and say, you're wrong and I'm right. Well, Where did that measuring rod come from? Is it just the product of society? Is it just a social construct? Or is it something more permanent, more enduring, more immutable, and true? He's arguing for truth with a capital T, while he is criticizing me for arguing for truth with a capital T. He's sawing off the branch upon which he sits. Now let's go back to Ian. Ian says this. Over the course of your column, you asked, do we still believe in science while simultaneously imploring a return to 5,000-year-old values? Yeah, I did. I asked, do we believe in science? And I did suggest that 5,000-year-old values are still being discussed some 5,000 years later because... Over the course of time, they seem to have worked. Ian, can you tell me which of those values you don't think has worked very well? Can you answer the question as to why the age of values, the age of reason, the age of logic, the age of moral conclusions makes them bad rather than good. You seem to be suggesting that just because something is old, that it should be discarded. That's interesting. That's interesting. Don't you think that maybe if something has been around that long and it's been returned to repeatedly over the course of human history as a solution to all that ails us, don't you think that a rational human being would want to discuss those enduring principles? Now be quiet and listen. You see, he's caught himself in his chronological snobbery. His next question is very interesting. Do we believe in genetics while discounting what was likely responsible for us sharing huge swaths of DNA with everything from pigs to squids? Well, Ian, are you suggesting... That we have no moral significance? That we're no different ontologically, in reality, biologically? Scientifically, that we have no moral significance above a pig or a squid? Is that what you're discussing? Excuse me, suggesting? You see, these are the types of questions we need to ask these people. And then we need to just be quiet and listen and let the truth win. You don't need to try to win. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. Not you, not me. Truth. Ask a question and let the truth win. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.